Our Father, your word is nourishment to our souls. And Father, there are so many things in this world that distract us, that entice us, that lure us away, that take our our attention off of you. And so we ask, Lord, that during this time, you would grant us perseverance to keep our attention fixed on you as we study your word, that we would see our need for you, that we would grow in the likeness of Christ, and that we would trust in him and in his work more fully. Use this time, Lord, to convict us, to transform us, to change us, to teach us, that we may glorify you in all that we do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Man, I have been chomping at the bit to get started with this series, and part of the reason for that is we're going to be looking at my favorite psalm today. And so I invite you to turn to Psalm 1 uh, as we start this new series in the Psalms, which will be uh, what we study uh, on the first Sunday of every month as we go through the book of John. Uh, The Psalms have been one of the most beloved books or or collection of of writings by many Christians throughout the ages. The collection of Psalms has been called by one name in particular that I'm I'm really, really fond of, and that is God's Hymnal. It's been called God's Hymnal because the Psalms are really a collection of uh, poetic verse. They were sung, they were memorized and sung by the ancient Hebrew people. And unlike most of the books that we find in, uh, in the Bible, or in the Old Testament specifically, the Psalms were not all written uh, by the same human author. Of course, they were all divinely inspired, uh, but this book wasn't written by just one author. The only other book that's drawn from multiple sources is the book of Proverbs. Um, Proverbs and Psalms have a lot of things in common. First and foremost, they're both forms of what we would call wisdom literature, Uh, The website for the Bible Project summarizes the books which fall under uh, the category of wisdom literature by noting that, quote, they reveal the collected wisdom of generations of godly people and invite us to consider the complexity and simplicity of living wisely, end quote. So let me ask you this. Do you want to live wisely? Because if you do, you should study the Psalms, and you should study them for, for all they're worth. And that's what we're going to be doing through, uh, throughout our study of the Gospel according to John. On the first Sunday of every month, we'll study uh, a psalm as a way of keeping one foot in the Old Testament and one foot in the New Testament. When we were studying uh, Genesis, we did that. We kept one foot in the Old Testament and one uh, foot in the New Testament by studying the parables of Christ, which we did for 27 months, I believe. Um, that's a lot of parables, but it kept us, kept us balanced. But the Israelites called this, uh, this book, this collection of divinely inspired songs, Tehillim, which means praise songs in Hebrew. And we get the word psalms from the word that the Greeks used for God's hymnal, which was psalmoi, uh, which also means songs of praise. So today we're going to be starting with Psalm 1. Seems like the logical place to start a study on the psalms. 
And I would say that this might be actually the best of the Psalms. And aside from Psalm 23, this is maybe the most widely recognized. But we should understand that it actually wasn't the first Psalm to be written. No, the first Psalm to be written was Psalm 90, which was written by Moses several hundred years before Psalm 1 was written. And they would be written over the course of the next 1,000 years, roughly. So there are a lot of different people from uh, a lot of different generations that contributed to the Psalms. Throughout the Bible, we're reminded that there are really only two types of people as far as God is concerned. There are God's people, and there are children of wrath. In the Psalms, we'll see them referred to as the wise man and the fool, or the blessed man and the cursed man. And Jesus uses this type of language as well. Uh, When he was preaching the Sermon on the Mount, which is easily his most famous uh, sermon, the last section uses this kind of black and white language to communicate something, telling us that there are two gates. There's the wide gate, and then there's the narrow gate. There are two paths. There's the narrow path, and then there's the broad path. There are two trees, and we know them by whether they produce one of two kinds of fruit, good fruit or bad fruit. And there are two houses that are built on two different kinds of foundations, one being Christ, one being anything other than Christ. So this is what we would refer to, this is what theologians refer to as the doctrine of two ways. It's one or the other, necessarily. There is no in-between. And I understand that in our culture, we hate that. We like, in our culture, we like uh, to think of things as being some shade of gray. And you'll get some people saying, there's no such thing as black and white. Everything is gray. Well, if you live in Seattle, sometimes it sure feels like that, doesn't it? But that is not the way that the Bible speaks, particularly when it comes to salvation and spiritual matters. No, there is only life and death. There is wisdom and there is foolishness. There is blessing and there is cursing. There is salvation and there is destruction. There's heaven and there's hell. So here's the question that Psalm 1 forces us to ask ourselves. What makes you happy? And I want every one of us to be thinking about this. What makes you supremely happy in life? Or what do you think would make you supremely happy in life? Now, while I understand that most people think that the Bible is actually a killjoy, that the Bible wants to prevent us from finding joy, or the Bible wants to prevent us from being happy. In truth, the Bible repeatedly urges us to not only consider what we find happiness in, but also to make sure that we are finding happiness that is true and lasting and pure and good. So the Bible really doesn't try to stop us from being happy Rather, the Bible tries to direct our happiness. It tries to urge us to find happiness and blessedness and contentedness and joy in the right things. So with that said, let's look at Psalm 1 together. Uh, I'll read the whole thing and then we'll break it down verse by verse. So we're looking at Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit 
in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is God's inerrant, inspired, infallible word for us. The book of Psalms, the entire book starts off with the words, how blessed. How blessed. And, and, and we all want to be blessed, don't we? But what does that actually mean? What does it actually mean to be blessed? The Hebrew word essentially just refers to happiness, but it's more than simple happiness uh, because happiness comes and goes with the circumstances that we face in life, which are constantly changing. No, blessedness actually refers to a happiness that is supreme, which I believe is why the NASB translators use the word how to magnify or underscore the word blessed. It is a supreme joy that the author of the psalm is referring to here. It is a deep sense of well-being, an inner sense of peace that transcends every circumstance in life. This is not a happiness that comes and goes. This is not a happiness that gets dragged out to sea as the tides of tribulation come in. No, it's a contentedness that is anchored and holds us in place, and it's all by God's grace. And isn't that what you want? Don't you want an ultimate, supreme happiness that does not fade, that does not shift, that does not move when life gets hard? Don't you want a happiness that lasts? A happiness that is greater than the worst circumstances you could possibly face in all of your life? Of course you do. Of course you do. You don't even have to answer that. If you're, in, if you're in a sane mind, of course you want that kind of happiness, that kind of blessedness. And Psalm 1 gives us a glimpse, just a slight glimpse of what that kind of blessedness looks like by drawing a series of contrasts between the righteous and the wicked. There are only two types of people. There are only two paths which lead to one of only two destinations. And we should see that we're talking about more than just a single blessing here. The Hebrew word for blessed here is actually in the plural, uh, which tells us that it's not just a blessing, but that it is a set of blessings. And so as we consider the blessings, the joy, the peace, the contentedness of the godly person when held up in comparison to the emptiness and to the the despair of the wicked or of the foolish. The contrast is designed to urge us, it's designed indeed to persuade us to see the utter foolishness of choosing any way other than the way which God has ordained leads to life and blessedness and happiness and contentedness. So as we consider what's written in this wonderful song. It really is a song. 
we'll see that it forces us to ask three primary questions. And those questions are, number one, who is the blessed man? Number two, how is he blessed? And number three, why is he blessed? Who is the blessed man? How is he blessed? Why is he blessed? So let's go ahead and just start with the first question, which the first verse answers for us. Who is the blessed man? Now, it's actually kind of interesting to note that he's not identified primarily by what he does, at least initially, but by what he does not do. He does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. He does not stand in the path of sinners. And third, he does not sit in the seat of scoffers. So you notice that there's a progression going on here, which is indicated by the verbs. Walking, standing, and sitting. And while it's true that humanity is naturally inclined to hate God and to rebel against Him, it's rare that, for example, children will explicitly express their hatred or their rebellion as fully as, say, a 20-year-old man or, a, or woman. Rather, there's something of a spiraling progression that takes place over the course of a person's life as the conscience is progressively more and more seared. As we do things which we know in our conscience, without God's Word, just in our conscience, we do things that we know we shouldn't do, and yet we continue to do them. And we have to deal with that somehow. And so the conscience becomes seared. That's the way that man deals with a guilty conscience. So first, he's influenced by sinners. Not the blessed man. This is what he doesn't do. The first thing that that we, by nature, are inclined to do is to be influenced by sinners. Then he begins to identify with them. And before you know it, he not only becomes one of them, but he encourages others to join him and to do the same The blessed man, on the other hand, does not do this. The blessed man, on the other hand, does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. That is, he doesn't give the wicked and the foolish an opportunity to influence him. But this is always where it starts, friends. This is always where it starts. You just lend your ear to what the wicked and the godless have to say. If you think of the the secular humanism that our kids are taught in public schools these days, that's the type of counsel that the psalmist is encouraging us, is urging us to avoid. But it's not just in public schools. It can be found absolutely everywhere you look. It's not just found in schools. You can see it on TV. You can see it in movies. You can hear it in music. You can find it in the workplace. Sometimes you can even find it in churches. You start looking up to somebody who is so far away from God. Oh, but they're, they're just so nice. Or they're so kind, or they're so gentle, or they're so smart, or they're so compassionate, or they're so generous, or they're so funny. And so what do you do? You start spending more and more time with that person, lending them your ear, thinking about them, thinking about their lifestyle. You talk to them, you listen to them, and then where do you think things go from there? You start thinking, well, this is a good person, and it wouldn't be so bad to be like this person. And so you start meditating on sin, even though you probably wouldn't use that word to describe it. And before you know it, you start walking in the counsel of the wicked. 
Allowing yourself to be in their presence. Allowing them to influence the way that you think. Allowing them to influence the way that you see things. And it just spirals further and further away from God after that. Before you know it, you not only walk in the counsel of the wicked, but you stand in their path. Think of it this way. The other night we, were, uh, we went to the, to the store late at night. And one of the stores was, was closed down in this shopping mall. And uh, there were all kinds of people uh, doing things that I can only imagine were uh, basically amounts of being no good. Uh, in the darkness, in front of the closed store. And we thought, how dangerous for a man or woman to walk before them. But how much more dangerous to stand over with them. And that's what the psalmist is saying. You go from walking to standing in their path. That is, they not only influence you, but you start to identify with them. The word path shouldn't be understood primarily as a physical path, but as a way of life where sin isn't uh, any longer something for you to be ashamed of. Rather, it's something that you need to embrace because it's who you are, or you convince yourself that it's how God created you to be. It's natural, they say. And it starts making more and more sense to you, more sense than agreeing that there's something sinful about your urges and waging war against the urges of the flesh. So first, you're influenced. Secondly, you identify. Third, you become what's called an iconoclast. Influence, identify, iconoclast. An iconoclast is defined by Merriam-Webster's dictionary as first, a person who attacks settled beliefs or institutions, and secondly, a person who destroys religious images or opposes their veneration. This is the person who sits in the seat of scoffers. A scoffer is someone who is humorously opposed to something. They, they mock something that is good, calling it evil. They're able to, to maybe make you laugh while you're turning further and further away from God. They tell jokes while calling good evil and evil good. And haven't we seen that happen all over the place? Comedians who we would say have really crossed the line in terms of what they are calling good or funny, things that aren't funny. So what starts out with walking in the counsel of the wicked and being influenced by them ends up with you becoming just like them and encouraging and recruiting others to do the same. This is Romans 1. This is what happens. You encourage others to do the same, and you applaud what people like you are doing. But the blessed man doesn't do any of this. But this confronts us with a very serious problem, friends. Because if we're being honest... Every single one of us in here today must confess that we do all these things more than we should. We do listen to the counsel of the wicked far more often than we should. We do come too close to identifying with them at times much more than we should. And see, the blessed man doesn't do any of this. In fact, the indication is that the blessed man has never done any of these things. Now listen, while I am certainly no Hebrew scholar, I've got the sense 
to at least consult with Hebrew scholars when I'm preaching from a Hebrew text. And the Hebrew scholars tell us that the grammar here leads us to see that the blessing that's being offered here requires pure and complete and unbroken obedience. The blessed man has actually never sinned. He has never transgressed God's commands. But you sinned. And you know it. And I've sinned. And and nobody knows that better than I do. And so if this is the case, what's this all about? What hope could we possibly have? Who could possibly inherit this status of being the blessed man? I mean, is the psalmist just kind of toying with us? Is he he laying forth a possibility before us that we could never enjoy or have because of the things that we've done and the things that we are inclined in the future to do? So this forces us to ask the most important question we could ask of this text. Has anybody ever lived up to the standard of Psalm 1? Who, since the fall of Adam, has ever lived up to such a standard? Article 15 of the Belgic Confession, which is one of the great Reformed Protestant confessions, says this. It says that we believe that through the disobedience of Adam, original sin is extended to all mankind, which is a corruption of the whole nature and a hereditary disease, wherewith infants themselves are infected even in their mother's womb, and which produceth in man all sorts of sin, being in him as a root thereof, and therefore is so vile and abominable in the sight of God that it is sufficient to condemn all mankind. That is to say, every single one of us, by nature, is already disqualified from Psalm 1, because our nature is fallen. So we sin by nature and by choice. And I get it, it it sounds hopeless. This is called original sin, and the Bible clearly teaches that original sin alone is enough to, uh, it's sufficient to establish our guilt before God. Man is not morally neutral. We are inclined to sin. We are inclined to hate and curse God and our neighbor by nature. And if God had chosen to leave each of us in our sin and to the consequences of our sin, that would have been perfectly just for him to just leave us to our sin because he absolutely does not owe us anything. And yet, that was Article 15 of the Belgic Confession. Article 17 of the Belgic Confession summarizes the Bible's teaching by noting this. It says, quote, Our most gracious God, in his admirable wisdom and goodness, seeing that man had thus, overthrown, had, had thus thrown himself into temporal and eternal death and made himself wholly miserable, was pleased to seek and comfort him when he trembling fled from his presence, promising him that he would give his son, who should be made of a woman, to bruise the head of the serpent and would make him happy. That is, would make him blessed. This is the promise, of course, from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, wherein God promised to bring redemption through a redeemer, through the woman's offspring. And this offspring would be the one to be the blessed man. He would perfectly obey God. He would not turn away from God for one nanosecond. And who would that be? 
only Jesus. Only Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ alone is the blessed man by merit. The only one who was, was never tainted by sin is Jesus. And so what we have to see is that the very first verse of the Psalms points us directly to Christ. Directly to our need for a Savior. We immediately see Christ's moral goodness, His moral perfection, His untainted righteousness, His faithfulness. But where does that leave us? The beauty of the gospel is this. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You have sinned against God in thought, word, and deed, both by nature and by choice. And I have too. We have failed to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we've only sinned against God continually. Because there hasn't been one second of our lives in which we have loved God the way that He demands. And the consequence of our sin is that we deserve an eternity in hell. That is justice. But God, who's perfectly just, sent Jesus not only to be the blessed man, not only to live the perfect life, but also to stand in the place of sinners who will repent of their own attempts to get into heaven by their own merit and will instead believe in Christ alone, trusting in Him alone for salvation. Do you want to be the blessed man on your own merit? Too late. It's too late for any of us. But the good news the gospel, is that there's forgiveness. There is the remission of sins, the washing away of guilt for all who will put their faith in Jesus Christ. And therefore, the blessings of Psalm 1 become ours, not through our obedience, not through our merit, not because we deserve it in any form, but because Christ has earned it. It's through his merit that we inherit these blessings. You see, by the grace of God alone and through faith alone, we have been united with Christ in a spiritual sense. Romans chapter 6, verse 5 says that we have been united with him. And the picture is kind of like two plants, if you'll imagine two plants being grafted together so that they become one. This is what it means to be in Christ, which is a phrase that Paul would use over 80 times throughout his epistles, not to mention all the times he says, in him instead of in Christ. The blessing of the gospel is that by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, God credits or he transfers the perfect, unfailing, obedient righteousness of Christ to all who are in Christ. And since we are clothed in Jesus' righteous obedience, by grace through faith in Christ, all of the blessings of Psalm 1 are as much ours as they are Christ's. How amazing is that? But what does that look like? 
What does it look like for a person to have these blessings? When a person is united with Christ, what does that look like? Well, their, their life, just like if you put two plants together and graft them together, you know, the, the, the one will start to look more like the other. And in the same way, or similar way, when a person is united with Christ, their life will increasingly be characterized by certain qualities as they become more and more like Christ and less and less like the person that they were before they were grafted to Christ. And so the increasing, the first increasing characteristic about them is seen in verse 2, where the psalmist contrasts the wicked man who sits in the seat of scoffers with the blessed man, saying, but his delight, now we're talking about what he does. First we saw what he doesn't do, now we're talking about what he does. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. Now, when we're talking about the law of the Lord, we're not just referring to the Torah, um, you know, the the first five books of the Bible, which were written by Moses and contain, uh, you know, all the Levitical regulations and all the laws that uh, that the Israelites were instructed to keep. Uh, It does refer to that, but in a general sense, it refers to all of God's Word, all God-breathed, inspired, special revelation. All of Scripture uh, can be referred to as the law of the Lord. And of course, this was supremely true of Christ, Christ knew the law of the Lord, not just the law, but all of it, and he loved the law of the Lord. As a child, he put the teachers of the temple to shame because he understood it. He knew it so much uh, better than they did. And when he faced the temptations of Satan in the wilderness, he responded to Satan by quoting Scripture. But this is not only true of Christ. Because we are grafted, because we are united with Christ, it is also true of every true child of God. Notice the connection here between the heart and the mind, the the will and the intellect. Their delight is in the law of the Lord. That is, it brings joy to them and peace to them. It comforts them. It is delightful to them. And it fills their heart with hope. And delight. And when it confronts them about their sin, it might hurt for a second, but they find joy in its cleansing power. So the heart is filled with delight aimed at the law of the Lord. The the law of the Lord is the object of the heart's deepest affection. And the result is that their intellect, their mind, is constantly meditating on what their heart finds delight in. You see the connection? The delight of the heart leads to what the heart or what the mind meditates on. So this is an important quality to see in anyone who claims to be a child of God. That is that they love the law. They love the Scriptures. They love the Bible. And because they love the Scriptures, they increasingly submit their life to its authority to understanding it, to applying it, to obeying it. They love to hear it. They love to study it. They love to think about it. They love to meditate on it. They find delight in it. And so even being confronted and convicted by it, they love. But we must know this. There is a reason that they love the Word of God. And the only 
reason that anybody loves the Word of God, truly loves the Word of God, is because they love God Himself. Listen, you will only find joy and delight in God's Word if you first find your ultimate joy and your ultimate delight in God Himself. If you do not love God more than you even love your own self, it will be impossible for you to truly love God's Word. If you love yourself more than you love God, you will always find ways around the parts of Scripture that would demand change from you or demand repentance or transformation from you. You'll find ways to justify anything that you do and everything that you do with God's Word. If you don't come to God's Word with a willingness to submit. And the only reason you would do that is if you love God Himself. One final observation before we move on. You won't meditate on something that you don't know. Right? I mean, think about it. Um, how, how do you meditate? How do you think about or, or, or ruminate mentally about things that you don't know? I mean, if you're not educated in mathematics, you don't sit around all day thinking about algebraic equations. I certainly don't, uh, and, and part of the reason for that is I don't know it. Uh, you, you know, I, I took algebra in high school, but that stuff is long gone. Uh, I, I, I kept as much as I would need in, in life and everything else, it's, it's gone. But you must know it. You must know it. And if you're a child of God, you want to know what God's Word says because it feeds you and it nourishes you and it transforms you and you find delight in those things. And so you come to it regularly with the goal not of mastering the Scriptures, but of the Scriptures mastering you. So that's the first question. Who's the blessed man? And that's the Gospel. The blessed man is Christ, but in Christ, everyone who belongs to him is also blessed. Our second question is, how is the blessed man blessed? Look at verse 3 with me. Verse 3 says, He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. And just in this one verse, we find five distinct ways in which those who are in Christ are blessed. First, we have to see that this tree is not a wild tree. It's been planted. It, 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 it isn't in its location uh, by random chance. It's not there for any other reason other than the fact that it has been planted there. And in the same way, friends, know that there is nothing in your life, there is not one single detail in your entire life that God has not ordered and ordained. He has not only ordained that you would have eternal life in Christ, but He has ordained the means. He has ordained where you live. He has ordained when you would live, who shared the gospel with you, and so on and so forth. Nothing in your life is accidental. Nothing in your life is by chance. God is sovereign over it all. In Acts chapter 17, verses 26 and 27, Paul says to the philosophers who were on Mars Hill that God, quote, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, 
having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation so that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him. The psalmist writes in Psalm 139, verse 16, And in your book were written all the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. God numbers our days. And he chooses when we will exist, where we will exist. Nothing in your life is accidental. None of it is by chance. The second blessing The first blessing is that we are intentionally planted. The second blessing here is that we're planted by streams of water. Streams of water. A a tree without a regular source of water is going to do what? It's going to die. But God plants us in places where we will be nourished regularly, consistently. And note that it's not a stream of water. It's plural. We have what you would call means of grace. Means of grace, those are things that feed us and that sanctify us, that that grow us in our sanctification, in our Christ-likeness. The preaching of the Word, prayer, taking communion, the fellowship of the saints, baptism, these are all examples of means of grace. These aren't things that give us salvation, right? but they're things that add to our salvation in a sense because they they don't justify us. Only Christ can justify us, but what they do is they grow us in the likeness of Christ. They sanctify us. They help us grow. That's what you call means of grace. Third, the result is that the tree produces good fruit in its season. Remember what Jesus said about true and false teachers. A good good tree produces good fruit. A bad tree produces bad fruit. And there is no such thing, friends. There is no such thing as a fruitless Christian. There's no such thing as a Christian who never bears good fruit. That is the lie of antinomianism. That is uh, that you you can bear fruit or maybe you won't. You can live however you want is antinomianism. It means against the law living as if God has given us no standards by which we should live. Now that's, that's heresy. That's, that's the idea that you can live however you want and still call yourself a Christian. The Word of God never, ever, ever supports that idea. No, the blessed man or woman bears good fruit. They are eager to repent They're eager to share their faith. They have peace in the midst of tribulation. They show mercy when they've been offended and have every right to be angry, and so on and so forth. The blessed man or woman will bear good fruit. The fourth blessing is that the leaf on this tree does not wither. If you think about what happens in the summertime here when, uh, when all the, the rain goes away and the, and the heat goes up, what happens to the grass and the moss and everything? It withers. It just shrivels up and, and it's gone. But through Christ, the blessed man, the Christian, has roots that go deep and strong. And by the grace of God, when that tree is surrounded by flames of persecution and 
temptation and cultural pressure to conform to the culture rather than to the Word of God, the proverbial leaves stay green and they do not dry up and wither. There is a constant inflowing of life. Fifth, in Christ, we prosper in all that we do. Now let's be very careful with that. Because we all know, we've all seen it on TV or, or wherever, that there are certain people who will read this word, uh, this verse, with you know, dollar signs in their eyes. And you can almost see you know, a, a sparkly smile as they say, send your money and prove your faith, right? No, that is not what this is saying. That is wicked, evil fruit. Uh, that's not what this means. Rather, the Hebrew verb prospers simply means to succeed or to make progress. And sometimes, I'd say more times than not, we actually make progress, spiritual progress, through failing, don't we? Because, see, God isn't concerned with our money as much as he's concerned about our growth in godliness. And so sometimes, oftentimes, we make progress by failing. Sometimes, that's a bad diagnosis at the doctor's office. Sometimes, it's losing your job. Sometimes, it's seeing your marriage fall apart. But if God is causing all things to work for our good, then how could we not prosper in the sense that God wants us to prosper? So sometimes, okay, you, you, you lose your job, or you, you just don't get a raise, or you don't make the team, or the stock value goes down, or your marriage starts to fall apart, and you prosper in the midst of it, because it grows you in godly character and godly virtue. And by God's design, by God's grace working in you to refine you, his purposes are accomplished. And so you make progress even when on the surface it looks like you are failing. But God is using all things. Not just some, not just the ones we like. He is causing all things to work together for the good of his people. Meaning our growth in Christ's likeness but the blessings of the righteous must be seen against the contrasting picture of the life of the wicked. The psalmist says, the wicked are not so. They are not so. The righteous do not entertain or consider the counsel of the wicked. The wicked are not so. The righteous delights in God's word. The wicked are not so. The righteous meditate on the law of the Lord day and night. The wicked are not so. The righteous are like a tree planted by streams of water. The wicked are not so. The righteous produces good fruit. The wicked are not so. The leaf of the righteous does not wither. The wicked are not so. The righteous prosper in all things. The wicked are not so. And so if they're not like this tree that's planted by streams of life, sustaining life-giving water, what are they like? The psalmist says they're like chaff. In the harvest time, heads of wheat are brought to the threshing floor where the heads would be crushed to separate the kernel from the husk, and then they're thrown into the air so that the lighter husks, the chaff, will be carried away by the wind. See, Shaft produces no fruit. 
and are blown away by the wind. They have no weight. It is useless. It is absolutely worthless. And the psalmist says, that is what the wicked are like. The wicked and the righteous could not be more different, even though on the surface they might look a lot alike. Therefore, says the psalmist, look at verse 5 with me, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. One other thing that happens to Shaph. It gets burned away. It gets collected and burned. And the wicked will face a day of judgment when they will be burned in the fires of hell for eternity. And so they may have progress in, the, in this world, but actually be failing. Whereas we may look like we're failing, but we're actually making progress. The wicked may thrive in this world, but they will not stand on the day that God judges them and condemns them. And verse 6 tells us why. This is the third question. Why the godly person is blessed. He says, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Not only will the wicked themselves perish, but their way will perish. The reason that the godly prosper and grow is because they are known by God. They're in Christ, and God is sovereign over their watch and care. And the reason that the wicked will not prosper and grow is because the path that they are on leads to eternal condemnation. Friends, there are only two types of people. There are only two paths. There are only two destinations. The question is, which path are you on? Which kind of person are you? You have to consider the course of your lives and your failure to live justly and rightly before God. But you must also see that if you do belong to the blessed man, the righteous one, the Lord Jesus Christ the blessings that he has earned are yours. They're yours. Ephesians 1 tells us that God has blessed us with every heavenly blessing. And so if you're in him, if you're with him, and if the blessings that are his are yours, the pattern of your life should increasingly resemble Christ. It should be looking more and more like Christ and less and less like who you were before Christ. So let's go back to the question we started with. What makes you supremely happy? The psalmist invites us. In fact, he challenges us to ask ourselves that question and to consider what the things that we find happiness in might reveal about us. And he also challenges us. He also invites us to find our greatest happiness and the deepest joys in life in the one who's gone before us, the one who perfectly walked the path of God's blessing in the place of wretched sinners who would put their hope for salvation in him alone. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who stands at the opening, who stands at the gateway of the book of Psalms to show us how to live a life that's pleasing to God. And not only does he show us how to live a life that's pleasing to God, but he also gives us the strength and wisdom to do it. Let's pray.
Our Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the way that it shines a light into the darkness of our hearts and shows us, shows us, Lord, how we have sinned against you. Shows us how many times we have intentionally sinned against you. And we thank you, Father, that it is by your grace that you sent Christ to be this blessed man, to perfectly fulfill the demands of the law, to live a perfect life, a sinless life, and to die the death that we deserved to die. So in him, we have the remission of sins. And we thank you that your word underscores this fact for us and reminds us of the fact that grace is found in him alone, in Christ alone. And so, Lord, we come to you with only filthy rags. And we come to you in the silence of our hearts, confessing every sin and the utter wickedness of our hearts without your grace transforming us. And we thank you for Christ. And as we confess our sins to you, we remember that you are both the just and the justifier. That you take our sin upon yourself and you clothe us in the very righteousness of Christ. And we thank you, Lord. We thank you for the work that you did to redeem us from the consequences that we rightly deserve. May our lives increasingly reflect Christ, that he may be glorified and that we may be blessed in him and for his glory. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.